Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor, and today on the show, I have a stand-up comedian who the New York Times has called crafty, thoughtful, and extremely funny. He's performed comedy all over the world, co-created the comedy web series Teacher's Lounge, and can be seen live touring with Jim Gaffigan in his Fixer Upper tour. So please welcome to the show, Ted Alexandra. Welcome to the show, Ted. Thank you, Max. I appreciate that. Uh, tell me, do you feel like you've made it now that the New York Times has called you extremely funny? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think crafty, too, is what really got me. That pushed uh, you over you the know, edge? That's what did yeah, it? <laughs> not, you know, there's plenty of extremely funny comedians, but how many of them are crafty, you know? So I think uh, I'm in rarefied air there. That's that's very true. The only person who, who who's ever <laughs> called me crafty was my fourth grade art teacher, and I think it was a pity. Ah. It was a pity crafty. It wasn't even like real. So yeah, <laughs> you're. Yeah, I don't know if that, if that <laughs> you know if that's a compliment or not, but take it. I think you should take it as such. Well, it's very cool. I'm very cool. Uh, excited to have you on the show today. Talk a little bit about you, your career, the new special you've you've recently put out. Uh, so to jump right into it, uh, growing up, what types of late night television or just comedy influences? influenced you and your comedy style well i do remember that late night uh stand-up appearances were an event you know when i was growing up um so i'm talking about like you know they would be on my radar late 70s early 80s uh i'm 49 years old so i was kind of at the tail end of like the carson era um you know, like I was too young to really appreciate his prime years. Um, but I would say more so with like David Letterman, I was, he was on my radar as like at the time, like kind of the new thing and kind of hip and doing a different version of the late night talk show. So when comedians would appear on his show in particular, it was an event and, you know, kind of something that you would pay attention to. Uh, and I remember probably the, you know, um, when I was in fourth grade was when uh, Steve Martin's album, uh, I think it was called like Let's Get Crazy or uh, Wild and Crazy Guy, whatever that, the one with, you know, the arrow through the head and all that. Uh, and I remember in fourth grade, kind of like the kids in the know were quoting Steve Martin bits to each other. Uh, and it was kind of like this secret language of like, you know, we knew that it wasn't really like, we probably weren't supposed to be listening to it as fourth graders, but it, uh, and then like when he would be on, uh, late night, it, it was, it was exciting. So you would say like Steve Martin was basically your introduction into comedy. I don't know if I'd say that necessarily. He was among the first, mm. um, but my parents had albums like, um, George Carlin, Class Clown, uh, Bill Cosby's albums, like several of them, um, you know, uh, Flip Wilson, all these different people. So, you know, obviously now with Cosby and stuff, it's a whole different context. But like back then as a kid, you know, he was just, he was a master and Carlin and all these people. Uh, and kind of to your, to your question, like when those people would be on late night, and also the landscape was so different because it was pre-cable. It was, you know, maybe the, the infancy of cable. Um, but the networks were really where it was at. So if they were on Carson or Letterman, uh, that was a big deal. And you would watch them and, you know, whether it was even, I, I remember there was the wave of like Seinfeld and Paul Reiser, uh, Elaine Boozler, Wendy Liebman, all these people, they were, Gary Shandling, they were all staples of late night. So, you know, it was a very particular thing, too, because you're seeing people for five minutes uh, or thereabouts. So it's a taste of their set and you're getting kind of a quick hit uh, to kind of be introduced to them. Mm. When you watch them, did you want to replicate it or did you ever try to replicate it or were you just watching it because you liked it? It was pleasurable. You know, at that age, it was again, uh, it was something like exciting about, uh, being like when you're a kid, whether it was listening to Carlin's albums on my living room floor, 
uh, or watching a late night set. There was something kind of titillating about like, you knew this was for adults. It wasn't really, you know, obviously you couldn't go to a comedy club. Uh, it was this entree into this adult world. So, um, that was what was exciting about it. I, I wasn't listening with an ear towards like, I'm going to do this someday. I, it was such a foreign planet. It was like, wow, like, you know, what is it? What it, it was so intriguing that I couldn't really fathom being part of it, but I just knew I, I loved it. I, you know, it just transported you to this adult world. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of that, to watch it as such a young kid, um, I'm I'm sure you got a lot of the jokes, but I'm sure a lot of the content covered you didn't understand. So, what do you think that speaks to the comedians that were able to drag you in and pull you in, being in fourth and fifth grade, to make a child and a grown person laugh? That's a skill. Yeah, it is. Um, and some people, you know, it's more deliberate. Uh, in terms of like somebody like Cosby at that time was probably going for uh, as wide an appeal as possible. Whereas somebody like Harlan um, maybe was not uh, as narrow in his scope of like, you know, he, he would curse or talk about adult themes or whatever. Um, but as a kid, I think like, you know, you're just listening to all this stuff and comprehending what you can and maybe there's an awareness that, okay, I didn't get that joke, but I know it's something that adults are laughing at, or maybe it's, you kind of can, you know, kind of piece together if it's something sexual or if it's something, you know, whatever the context is, you kind of can piece it together, even if you don't get it entirely. And that's part of the appeal too, when you're a kid is like, I know I'm not supposed to be listening to this. Um, so yeah, stuff that you don't get can be as, intriguing as stuff that you do get um because people are laughing so you know whether you're laughing or not like the ones that you don't get can be just as intriguing in a certain sense mm -hmm. i like that word intriguing because it, it brings to my mind when i was a little i first watched david letterman when i was five and he always did that bit right before the show started when they announced him he would run across the stage like he was late and then walk out <laughs> and i remember yeah. as a kid turning to my dad and being like, why is he late? Why, how did this happen? Someone has obviously <laughs> messed up here. And my dad explained to me, no, this, that's what he does. It's a bit, it's to make people laugh. And it was so intriguing to me. So I really yes. liked that word uh, because it, it just made me think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something, you know, that's a good example because it's like, there's no reason for him to do that. Obviously, <laughs> you know, he's there. Um, he's not late, you know, he's standing there in the wings ready to go on. But, uh, yeah, it's just another, it's almost a quintessential Letterman bit because it is bizarre. It is like, um, turning the format on its head in a weird way that right before he's about to go on, he's sprinting full steam across the stage. So yeah, even something like that, that he's not saying anything, it's a physical gag, but it's, uh, it's kind of quintessentially Letterman. Mm -hmm, right. It, it's about, it was, it was like he was totally in control, but showing that it was out of control. It was total opposite. I just love it. I'll never forget that. When you were, when you were a kid and you got to your teenage years and then your young adult years, did you want to be a comedian? Did you know this was the path for you or did you want to do something else? Uh, you know, I think I, I knew that I wanted to be in the art. I had done a lot of stuff musically, uh, played the piano, um, was in kind of various musical classes and performance groups um, throughout uh, elementary school all the way up through high school. And also had done a lot of theater, um, had done like community theater in my neighborhood in the summers. I had done a lot of acting in school plays. Uh, so I, I was very much interested in the art. Um, and just loved everything about putting on a show. Um, and, you know, always loved comedy. But again, it, it was almost like this foreign thing of like, well, I get how you put on a play or I get how, uh, you know, like a band, like, you know, plays in, like a set of music or whatever. But like, how do you like, how does somebody like, where do you even begin? Like, how do you become a, like it was kind of not on my radar to do it. 
um, initially. I would say like when I got to college and I started doing some sketch comedy and some long form sketches and, and writing stuff, that was when the light bulb went off like, oh, yeah, you know, like um, I can write, you know, you write stuff, whether it's for a group or for yourself. And that was when, you know, I had long been a fan and long been essentially almost studying stand up and, you know, kind of listening to it like obsessively, um, but didn't realize like, oh, yeah, th- you know, maybe this will be my path. Mm. How old were you when you did your first set? I think I was about 19, maybe 20. Um, and that wasn't even at a comedy club. That was at a local, uh, talent show that like a neighboring church had this kind of cool youth center that was, um, you know, there was like just interesting things going on there. It wasn't like the typical, like what, what, what would conjure in your mind of like a a church youth center. Like the guy who was leading it was kind of a punk rock type guy uh so he would do these interesting he even had like the ramones come and play uh you know one one saturday night you know so it was like you were in this weird kind of like thing again that you didn't even understand but you knew it was interesting um so they they put on like these talent shows or you know open mic type things and uh i put together five minutes and i did my first stand-up set is kind of like a standalone thing it wasn't like i in my mind said like this is the beginning of my stand-up career you know it was like all right let me let me try this and so yeah i did and it was you know i mean it was uh it was a thrill and it was kind of terrifying but it went well enough that i um decided to kind of like keep doing it not immediately but eventually Mm -hmm. what did you decide to talk about because it's such a change you were talking about how you were an actor doing like community plays in that you have words written for you you know it's going to get a laugh it's been written to get a laugh but like with this this is the first time you've you've written out you know stand-up comedy it's now who knows if someone will laugh at this so how did you prepare differently for your first stand-up set than when you were preparing for plays well, the first thing is exactly what you said, that like you have to write it, you know, so you're not depending on a script that's been handed to you. Uh, so that's the first thing that's both kind of um, liberating and um, terrifying because uh, it's all on you. So, uh, yeah, it's just and I think I, I remember writing pretty uh, extensively to arrive at that five uh, lackluster minute that I eventually cobbled together. Like it wasn't like, you know, I I found five minutes of gold amidst, you know, uh, pages and pages of notes. I I found five minutes that I felt comfortable that I thought that I thought were good, but especially that first time you really have this overwhelming sense of like, well, I think it's funny, but am I crazy? Like I could be way off about this and could everything could go down in flames. And I guess that's the appeal of even trying it in the first place. Uh, and over the years, you you get you develop that sense of like, well, if I think it's funny, I can probably make it work. But that first time, it's like you're totally flying blind. And uh, yeah, so to answer your question, the stuff I did was like, I think I remember writing a bit about there was this perfume called Ego East, where uh, it was like this kind of concept piece in black and white where women would like open windows and just yell Ego East. And I just I did a bit about that uh, i don't even remember what the punchline was uh, if, or if it, there was one yeah. um but uh yeah it was just like kind of talking about uh things that i noticed i think i did one about like women's gymnastics and um yeah it was like not not good like uh <laughs> none of it was good and uh, it's embarrassing to even think back on but you need to do that you know if you're going to do stand-up you need to get a lot of embarrassing moments under your belt. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you of performing until you felt like you found your footing and you felt like you knew what you wanted to talk about? I would say after that initial one-off of doing that talent show, um, maybe uh, two or three years later was when I was in college and I was doing plays in college and a friend of mine, Hollis James, kind of single-handedly started this sketch comedy group 
in our college and I auditioned for that and got in and, and I submitted some sketches to him uh, and he put them into the, into the show, which again was kind of um, uh, like a moment for me of realizing like, wow, I guess, you know, if, if he liked something that I wrote enough to put it in the show, then I guess I must be decent. <laughs> and then, you know, it, it got some laughs when we performed it. And then he and I started to do a two man act uh, like when we got out of Queens College in New York, uh, we started to go to like the open mic nights around Manhattan and around Brooklyn and some in Queens. And uh, at that point, there were enough that you could kind of do it like once or twice a week uh, if you wanted to, even like on an open mic level. Um, so, yeah, that was that was my entree was doing it as part of a duo. Mm. And then uh, eventually, um, maybe after a year and a half or so of that started doing it solo because more and more I was having the, uh, you know, I was, I was really having the urge to do my own thing and put out my own voice and my own material. Mm, I got you. During this time, were, were you pursuing comedy full time or were you doing other jobs to kind of support you? Well, what's funny is like, if, if you hope to do stand up full time, you, you kind of have to do it full time. Like, unpaid for years you know so what i did was pretty soon after kind of embarking on the solo career i uh i was doing that maybe three or four nights a week uh again like that i was fortunate that like uh growing up in queens i was halfway between the manhattan comedy clubs and uh the clubs out on long island uh, at the time there were three or four very good clubs on Long Island as well. So uh, I was able to kind of straddle both of those distinct comedy scenes. There wasn't a whole lot of overlap between the two, but I could go two nights a week out to Long Island and then another two nights a week, maybe three nights a week in Manhattan or, or Brooklyn. And um, so pretty quickly, I, I, I had this weird full-time job in a sense that was not paid. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but uh, I was getting better and better. And then my day job, uh, I had a couple of them, actually. I was a substitute teacher for five years when I was, you know, starting out in comedy. And I was also working part-time at a supermarket. Um, that was like kind of like my high school into college job that I just kept like, you know, a couple nights a week. So there was a time when I was kind of juggling all three of those. There, there must have been a, a time where you're juggling all these three jobs, a time where you, you're probably thinking to yourself, like, is this worth it, the stress, the, the money, all of this? Is it worth it? So how did you, when you hit those moments, what kept you going? What kept you in pursuit of the comedy dream? Well, you know, there's this sense that you're, you're doing something fulfilling, you know? There's a sense that you're doing something that isn't the... Um, you know, the natural kind of, uh, progression of just the usual, the usual path, you know? Um, so that is gratifying to like, because if I was just doing the teaching or working at the supermarket, I, I think I would have felt, uh, kind of like in a dead end maybe, or, or unfulfilled or kind of like that I didn't have purpose. But the fact that I had comedy as well, made everything that much more purposeful because I was doing this bizarre thing that um, was very satisfying and that was like challenging and I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and there's, there's not really a, a blueprint um, when you're starting, you kind of discover it as you go. And then you realize like, Oh, a lot of people have, have done this before me and I can kind of uh, reference their journeys and, and kind of learn from that as well. So, but when you're starting again, there is the uh, the thrill of figuring it out. Mm, I got. I see. I got you. What now? I want to talk about a little bit of your your style, your personal comedy style. So, when it comes to writing, uh, how do you write? Are you someone who like will write on a, a big pad of paper, or do you just type out lines in your phone and and test it out later? What's your writing style? Yeah, I would say all of the above, you know, like as technology has morphed, um, my process has, has morphed with it. Like when I first started, I was very much a, a notebook and paper uh, and pen um, type of person. I would sit down 
in, you know, either just a quiet room in my home or sometimes go out to a cafe in my neighborhood where I could kind of hunker down for, um, an hour or two and, uh, and just uh, daydream and brain brainstorm and see what comes. Um, but over the years that's morphed to, uh, you know, if I have some inspiration, obviously just putting a note into my phone or, um, typing it on a laptop. Um, I still kind of like the, I like the, for me, because I grew up this way in school and stuff, I like the organic feel of a pen in my hand and jotting stuff down in my handwriting, just scribbling it out. And then eventually maybe, uh, after I've tried it a bunch of times, kind of writing, uh, typing it out as more of a script in a, in a document. Mm. Are, are there certain topics that, that you tend to like gravitate towards to talk about and certain topics that you tend to stay away from? Uh, I would say for me, what, what tends to be the formula and, and it's, it's not, um, conscious. I think it just kind of works out this way is, uh, my specials or my hours, my albums, like when, when I have an hour put together, it tends to be like maybe half of it is personal stuff talking about my life, you know, uh, and like now being a married man, uh, talking about being newly married, you know, just, uh, celebrated a first anniversary. So half of it would be stuff that, uh, is unique. I wouldn't say unique to me, but it, it's personal that, uh, hopefully resonates with other people. And then the other half is more kind of a look at the world uh, I guess like kind of the, like the micro versus the macro, uh, like the looking at the socio-political stuff or things that um, everyone is possibly thinking about or talking about. Mm, I see. And uh, I, I, w- I want to ask you this because I uh, was one time – uh, all my friends know that I love comedy and that I, I do improv in Atlanta. Um, and I was talking to this girl and we were talking and she said, before we take this any further, I just want to make sure of like, is what we talk about going to stay between us? Cause I know you're a comedian and I don't want you to go take it out telling jokes about me. <laughs> so I, I'm curious when you first met so you, your wife, just now you broke, just now you, uh, you broke that by <laughs> honestly, you, you uh, repeated the conversation. Don't worry. I'll edit this whole part out. It'll be like, it never <laughs> happened. <laughs> but I, I want to know when you met your wife and you're a stand up comic, she knows that you're going to be talking about your life. Was she, did you have to tell her like, Hey, I'm going to be talking about our relationship or was she like okay with it or not okay with it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you're a comedian um, and that's what you do professionally, you know, anyone that you meet, if, if the relationship's going to last, uh, they're going to have to be okay with it, you know, because if they're not, that's going to be a major problem. So my wife is very funny uh, and also a big comedy fan. And, uh, you know, she gets it, you know, so you kind of, she's an artist as well. She's a a fine artist and, you know, just a very artistic soul. So there was no kind of convincing that I had to do in terms of like, uh, getting her on board. Um, but it is a different thing when you're talking about another person, you know, and talking about now my wife, uh, in, in my material, um, cause when you're talking about like maybe someone you dated or whatever, that's a different level of intimacy. And, you know, um, it's kind of like, there isn't, you're, you're not, you know, sharing a life with somebody. And, uh, now if I'm talking about my wife on stage, I want to be mindful of her as a person and her, um, integrity and her, um, privacy to a certain extent too that like you know i'm not just going to go up there and talk about anything i feel like it's going to have to be something that i feel she's okay with you know and that's respectful of her that's not just kind of turning her into a punchline uh unless you know it's it's something that sits well with me and and with her you know so yeah there is there is a measure of you know, like I said, she, she is very funny so that it, I don't feel constricted by that, but I do feel almost like the stakes are higher because I'm talking about someone I love. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that it's funny, uh, first, 
um, but also equally as important um, that it's respectful. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of hitting the right notes that it's not a cheap joke or whatever. Right. Absolutely. Do you do you run jokes by her or other family members or friends before you put them out there? I've never been big on doing that uh, simply because stand up is such a specific dynamic where you're not running jokes by one person at a time. You know, it's mm. a collective uh, it's a collective kind of editing that goes on. Um, so it's almost unfair to say to one person, Hey, what do you think of this joke? Because even when they're in an audience, they're not, you know, they're well aware that they have the cover of like, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, depending on the size, size of the room, uh, that it's almost too much pressure to put on one person. Mm. Uh, so I don't like to do that. But that said, if I have something that I'm really excited about, occasionally I will say to her like, Oh, you know, listen to this thing that I wrote. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I, I don't run jokes by my wife or any single person because it's just, it's not a true gauge of whether the joke works or not. The only gauge of any joke is to do it on a stage in front of a crowd. Yeah, that's true. That's very fair. That's very fair to say. Um, I want to talk about your your new special, the new special you just put out. So tell me a little bit about it. What's it called? Uh, how long did it take you to put out? And just, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, so this special is called Senior Class of Earth. And uh, that title is kind of a uh, alluding to the fact that we might be the like kind of the final graduating class of, of the planet. <laughs> um, so it is kind of a somewhat, you know, of an apocalyptic uh, reference, but, you know, tongue in cheek and also kind of uh, hopefully finding some, some hope in it and some gallows humor. Um, and this special uh, it's been, I guess about three years since my last special uh, which was called, I did it. Um, and the difference between the two, it's actually my third special overall. Um, uh, the difference between these last two is I was a single man in my early forties when I recorded, I did it. And now three years later, I'm a married man, uh, in my late forties, um, when this came out. Uh, so that's a big change in and of itself because on, I did it like that was kind of the whole the whole theme of that special was, you know, I did it. I made it, I made it into my forties, uh, single, no kids, never married. I did it. I made it through the maze. So I was kind of reveling in the fact that I avoided the kind of pitfalls of adulthood and the traps of, um, partnering up with somebody. And I was just living this carefree life, um, celebrating, you know, that, that freedom. Uh, so now it's kind of almost a 180 in the sense of like this special is, talking about, um, you know, being at the time when it was recorded, I was engaged to be married and now I'm, I am married. Um, so yeah, it kind of explores those themes of, you know, being in a relationship and being an older guy. And my wife is 18 years younger than me as well. So I'm 49, she's 31 going to 32. Um, so exploring like some of those themes as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's personal and, um, it also talks about the world at large and, you know, kind of the almost ever present sense of a uh, doom that so many of us, uh, talk about, whether it's climate change or all the things going on in the world, but finding the, finding the humor and all of it. When did you decide that it was time for a new special? Like, do you get to a point where you're like, oh, I have all this good content. I'm ready to put it in one place. Or is it? I've, it's been so long since my last special, I'm going to write new content to do a special. Um, you know, th there's been this, uh, kind of shift in the last five or 10 years where the bar has been set at like, you know, people putting out a new hour every year, um, or so, you know, maybe year and a half, two years, whatever it is. Um, for me, what feels organic at this stage of my career, I've been, I've been a stand up for 25 years. So now, uh, what feels organic for me is probably every two to three years, uh, I think will be the pace that I look to keep up just because I, I feel as though, um, to, to do it every year, 
it feels almost a little too ambitious. Uh, it feels almost too like it rushes the creative process, in my opinion. I think stand up, you need to live with uh, the bits a little bit. Um, so, you know, there's various schools of thought on that. Some people feel as though, like, you know, you should, you know, you should, I heard like Seinfeld said, like, oh, no, you shouldn't put it, you know, you should put out a special every five or, you know, plus years. Um, but I feel like maybe somewhere in between, because I do think there is merit in living with a bit for a while and finding another tagline or finding another physical gesture that comes along in the performance. Um, whereas if you just did it every year, uh, you don't know it at the time, but the bit isn't fully ready yet. Mm. Mm. On your website, I went on before the interview and I saw your specials are available at a very unique pricing. Uh, the You pay what, what you want, so a minimum of 99 cents up to whatever. How did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? And isn't do, do you think it's a, a risk doing it that way? Yeah, I think there was a certain amount of risk involved, but I was intrigued by doing it at that model uh, where people pay what they want. Um because I had seen like, you know, Radiohead do that in different uh, bands, I think. Um, but in the comedy world, at the time that I put the specials out, uh, the bar had kind of been set at $5 for, for a special. Um, so I felt as though like, well, you know, maybe let's take it to the next level where you leave it up to the consumer because then, you know, you're going to get your fans who pay, you know, $5 or, or more even, uh, depending on, you know, it, it kind of, it's like the honor system of like, well, if you like my work, then you decide what, you know, what you want to want to want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the other hand, people that maybe are unfamiliar with you, it gives them a reason to take a chance and maybe they pay a little bit less. But what I found was that the average, wound up being more than $5 anyway, because I had some people that paid, um, you know, $20 because they really liked my work and wanted to essentially say thank you. Uh, and then I had people that were kind of just taking a chance and weren't familiar with me and they paid a dollar or two, you know? So, um, so in the end, I think it was a worthwhile kind of experiment. Uh, and now with my new special with senior class of earth, I'm putting this out uh, in conjunction with All Things Comedy, which is Bill Burr and Al Madrigal's company. Um, so it's comedian owned and it's more of like the direct from comedians to the consumer. Uh, and since they, this is the first special they're putting out on All Things Comedy, um, so they, they set the uh, price point. I mean, we talked about it, but they sent the pr price point at Four ninety nine to buy it and one ninety nine to rent it. Uh, so I felt comfortable with that, so people could have the option. Mm, yeah, and that is like I know for for myself, I'm twenty one, I'm in college, and I know all my friends would gladly pay one ninety nine to to rent a comedy album. So it, that's totally totally accommodating, not just for older people, but for younger people like myself who are gonna venture out and find new comedians. That that's a uh, $2 risk everybody I know would gladly take. I, I do want to know, though, what is your personal best on the amount that someone paid for your album? You know, that's a good question. I think I think I remember, you know, I don't pay as close attention to the analytics now, um, but I, I remember seeing someone spend like $30 on on the special. Um, so I think that, I think 30 might've been the top. And again, um, you know, these might just be people who want to say thank you, uh, or people that have money to throw around or <laughs> whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the bonus of having the pay what you want model, because, you know, again, like if it's just one price, then you're, that's what people are going to pay or not. Uh, but, if it's pay what you want, then you get these kind of outliers where people are throwing, you know, uh, four or five, six times what you would have expected at you as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing just, and also philosophically it kind of aligned with my thing of like, 
I don't want the cost to be prohibitive for anyone to kind of keep people from checking out my work. Uh, and if, if people want to throw 30 bucks at me for my special, then great. <laughs> right, totally, exactly. I want to talk about uh, Teacher's Lounge, your, your web series. How, did, how yeah. did you develop it? How did it come about? Well, that was an outgrowth of having been a teacher for five years. You know, like I, like I mentioned, I, I started out um, when I first gradu- graduated college. I had a dual degree in music and education, uh, ch- you know, early, um, early childhood education, elementary education, I should say. Uh, so I wound up teaching in New York City for five years uh, teaching music. So that was the kind of the you know, the seed of the idea was just kind of like, um, my friend Hollis, uh, who I mentioned earlier that I started, uh, doing comedy with, he and I collaborated on this web series. And the basic idea was to set a web series in a school teacher's lounge. And, uh, I played the music teacher, Hollis played the janitor, and we were always just kind of hanging out, killing time, avoiding work in the teacher's <laughs> lounge. Mm-hmm. And in every episode, a different comedian would pop in playing a faculty member. So we had like Jim Gaffigan playing the school nutritionist. Uh, we had David Tell playing the school photographer. Uh, Judy Gold was the gym teacher. Michael Che uh, played like a, a rival teacher who we were both running for president of the faculty uh, against each other. So yeah, we just did 10 episodes. Uh, Todd Barry, just on and on. Jim Norton, so many great comics. Rachel Feinstein. Um, so yeah, it basically, uh, it became an opportunity to showcase people that I loved. Uh, Lewis Black was the principal. Um, and for us to kind of, we, we approached it almost like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where there was some improv within it. So we would script the basic idea of what we wanted to communicate. And then we told the comedians, like, you don't have to, like, say it exactly like this. And if something pops into your mind, you can take it in a different direction altogether. Uh, so it was fun. And, and it was cool because you got to see the comedians really take it in, like, unexpected directions because they were just kind of making things up as they went. Are you and Hollis the ones that assigned each comedian what type of teacher they would be? Or did you let them kind of uh, be a part of it and pick what they wanted to be? No, we, uh, we assigned them. So yeah. Uh, Judah Friedlander was another one, the world champion. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, like with Judah, um, you know, I'm good friends with him and I knew that he is a, an avid ping pong player. Uh, that's one of his hobbies. He's kind of a, uh, a sneaky good athlete in general. Um, and, uh, very accomplished, uh, ping pong, like kind of amateur ping pong player. So we, we kind of wrote that into the script for him. Um, for Jim, obviously, with his kind of food-based, like, Hot Pockets and all bacon and all the stuff that he talks about, we just figured it was a natural to have him be the, the school nutritionist. Um, Judy Gold was the gym teacher. Yeah, so, like, we just kind of, like, tapped into their persona and what we thought would be a good fit for them. Uh, but, no, we didn't consult with them. We, Hollis and I would sit down and write each of the scripts and they're each, you know, like three to five minutes. We did 10 episodes all together. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a really fun thing to collaborate on and to, uh, you know, for Hollis and I to work together again and for me to work with all these great comedians who I've been friends with for some of them for, you know, 15 years, 20 years, some of them for, you know, like Michael Che or Rachel, uh, known for, you know, maybe 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any plans to do more episodes or to do a different web series with like a very similar concept? Um, at this time, we're hoping that, you know, maybe at some point uh, we can dig back into it either as a web series or maybe for television. Uh, we shopped it around and there were a couple of other t- um, teaching shows that were already on the air. So we kind of ran into some dead ends. Uh, a little bit of frustration because uh, there were already like networks were already doing a couple of teaching shows, which we mm. found kind of weird because like, obviously there's no lack of like uh, cop shows or, you know, doctor shows or whatever. So we just found it weird. Like what, you know, there can't be four or five teaching shows like, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know if it was just a polite way of saying no, but anyway, like we're excited to, 
to maybe do more of that. And Hollis and I are also um, collaborating on a, a movie script. We're writing like a Christmas movie. Um, so hopefully that'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll start to shop that around within the next six months or so. Yeah, that that's super cool. That is Awesome. Um, I do want to, as the interview wraps up, I do want to talk about you and Jim and the tour that you guys are on. Um, but how did you how did you meet Jim Gaffigan? How did your you guys' lives interconnect? Yeah, well, Jim and I really connected through the New York comedy scene, you know, and um, I've known Jim over 15 years. Um, so I knew him, you know, before Hot Pockets and before he was a household name, um, just when he was coming up through the comedy scene the way I was. You know, he was probably three or four years uh, ahead of me, um, but we crossed paths quite a bit and struck up a friendship. And then, um, you know, maybe three years ago or so, uh, he reached out to me and said, would you like to open up for me on the road? And, you know, I didn't, know at the time that it would turn into a three-year kind of uh you know working relationship and friendship uh beyond that but um i just thought it was going to be for that one summer tour but it's turned out to be a steady gig now for over three years and uh for me it's great because a i just love working with jim and we're friends uh but also it has allowed me to play these enormous venues that i otherwise probably would not be working at this stage in my career, like Madison Square Garden and a lot of like NBA arenas. We just played um, the Milwaukee Bucks new arena. Um, you know, we've played like where the, the Pacers play in, in Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just like these 15,000 seat arenas. I think in a couple of weeks we're going to Utah where the Jazz play. Um, so yeah, those are like the larger end of what we do. And then we'll also do a lot of beautiful outdoor amphitheaters in the summer that are maybe 5,000, 7,000. Uh, we do a lot of great, like older theaters, um, around the country too, you know? So it's, for me, it's just great gigs, uh, getting to work with my friend and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's opened up a whole, a whole new world and also a whole new fan base for me because his fan base then gets, you know, kind of, um, I, I get to kind of stay in contact with, with them. Mm -hmm, right. Do you prepare differently, uh, for when you are about to open for Jim than when you are about to like headline a comedy club yourself? Uh, I have this thing where I sprint across the stage as, as fast <laughs> as I possibly can. Um, no, uh, I, when I'm preparing for a gig with Jim, um, it is a little different in that, you know, Jim's brand for lack of a better word is, is more like family friendly and literally there's everyone from, uh, children, you know, could be seven year olds going up to grandparents. Uh, so I have to be mindful of that when I'm putting together my set. Um, so, you know, I just, I kind of keep it, uh, more family friendly than I would if, if I'm just headlining a comedy club. Um, you know, I'll do more adult themes or, you know, things that like wouldn't be appropriate necessarily for a child, you know. So. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a good exercise in the sense that, you know, you have to um, entertain 10,000 people and uh, you also have to be mindful that there's all different ages there. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the gig. And, and you know, um, just figuring out like, OK, w what. You know, and also I'm doing 15 minutes opening up for Jim, sometimes 20 minutes, uh, as opposed to if I'm headlining a comedy club, it's 45 minutes to an hour. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so it's you just kind of strategically pick uh, what's going to be in the set that night. Mm -hmm. And you said you, you've been able to perform at all these different places, not only in the United States, but even all over the world. So and this, this is a big question, this is a doozy of a question. But if you were to pick one place. What's been your favorite venue that you've been able to play? Hmm. Favorite venue. Well, Madison Square Garden was special simply because I'm, I'm a New Yorker and mm -hmm. I've gone to so many events there over the years from Knicks games to, uh, you know, concerts, seeing, you know, Stevie Wonder or the Beastie Boys or, you know, 
Carol King, James Taylor, like just endless shows that I've seen. It's like, you know, an iconic venue. So to be on the stage there was kind of a trip, you know? And, and I remember like I had seen um, Stevie Wonder there only like weeks before. So like when I was sitting there watching Stevie Wonder at the garden, uh, I was aware that I was going to be on that stage in a few weeks. So it was like, I was kind of experiencing the the venue on a, on a different level because I was I was just taking it all in and realizing that you know I would be up there shortly. Um, so yeah, that one was special. But as far as like international travel, you know, like I've done like the Sydney Opera House uh, when I did a festival there. You know, another iconic venue. Um, I've done uh, I did like the Amman Jordan Comedy Festival years ago. Uh, so like performing there or in Egypt, uh, I was in Cairo and Alexandria. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily that the venues were, um, like so spectacular. They were kind of, you know, like nice theaters, but just to be in like a foreign country, uh, where I, I felt, you know, like it wasn't like I was going to Canada or to the UK. Uh, like I, I had kind of like, nerves about like would my stuff translate would the themes be universal so it was very gratifying to find out that it did work there and that it, the themes were universal and so that was like a, a good kind of affirmation and also just an education that like you know the the frame of reference for the world is is i guess you know, there's kind of a shared frame of reference that we all have mm-hmm. did, did they have a translator for you or did you perform in English and just the audience had to understand English? Uh, no, I learned Arabic specifically <laughs> for the game. No. Good for you. Um, yeah, Good no, for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that was, that was um, an English speaking crowd. So again, mm. that was, you know, because like you say, uh, that was my question too. It's like, are they going to understand English? Are they going to understand um, like the nuances of language and certain like turns of phrase that, you know, I thought maybe would be too specific to, to, you know, English. So, but I was pleasantly surprised that I remember specifically when I was in Cairo, uh, we played like a 3000 seat theater in Cairo and uh, the crowd was so great. I mean, uh, you like, you could have been anywhere. Like if you hadn't told me, I would have thought, you know, we're at some, some venue somewhere in the States, but, mm-hmm. uh, and then, and then afterwards we did like a meet and greet with the, um, the audience could come by and say hello. And, um, there was just so many like students, um, that, you know, they grew up speaking English as well. So mm-hmm. their English was perfect, you know? So again, it's kind of, it also makes you kind of assess like as an American, how ignorant we are of, you know, uh, other cultures, other parts of the world. Um, they're, they're much more conversant in the things that are going on with our politics and pop culture mm. than we are, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I, I kind of relish those opportunities to, to travel. I, I feel really lucky. Yeah. Well, we, we are at the end of our interview. So there is only one more question that I have to ask you. It's a question I actually ask every single one of my guests. So you will be episode number 51. So this is the 50, you're the 51st answer that I, that I'm going to get. Okay. So I'm I'm honored. (laughs) Yeah. I saved number 51 just for you. So it's a big deal. Um, so here's the question. If you were to give one piece of advice to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, I would say if you're, if you want to be in my shoes and I'm, I'm assuming by that, you mean funny comedic shoes. (laughs) Um, I would say, um, just jump into the pool. You know, luckily the good news is you're, embarking on it in a time that uh there's never been more opportunities to to do it there's never been more stages where you can sign up for an open mic um so if you feel that impulse to go on stage and and do some stand-up uh or improv or any any kind of performing i would i would encourage anyone to do it especially you know in, in these times where um because of maybe the nature of uh isolation uh, people spending more and more time on, in front of screens and stuff 
there is something inherently nourishing about just getting out amongst people and um, whether you are planning to do it professionally and pursuing it for a career or just something that you want to give it a try, go for it, you know, and just put the work in. And depending on what your degree of uh, seriousness is, if, if you want to make it a career versus if you just want to give it a try, um, you know, if you, if you want to, to answer your, your exact question, if you want to be in my shoes and make a career of it, um, approach it with a serious mindset, meaning do it multiple times a week, spend uh, hours uh, writing every week. You know, if it's an hour a day, if it's two hours a day, um, make sure that you're kind of putting in the time. And I always tell people, like, if you want it to be your job, you have to treat it like it is your job, even when you're not being paid. And even when you don't have a boss, you kind of have to, that's the key is you have to be your own boss and uh, create your own hours and stick to it, you know, but it's so fun and challenging and rewarding that uh, you won't notice the hours that you're putting in. It'll, it'll just be uh, an adventure. Well, Ted, I have good news for you. That was the correct answer. So <laughs> thank God. Excellent. I would hope so after all these <laughs> yeah. years. Uh, Ted, if people want to find out more about you or see you perform or find your specials, how can they do that? Where can they find you? They can go to tedalexandro.com. Uh, all of my specials are on there. And um, the recent special is on there as well, uh, Senior Class of Earth. And specifically, you can go to atcspecials.com. Uh, ATC stands for All Things Comedy. Um, but like I said, tedalexandro.com will, will get you to all things Ted Alexandro. Well, perfect. Ted, thank you so much for being on. I mean, it was, a, it was an awesome experience to be able to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure, Max. I appreciate it. And, and I really uh, appreciated all your questions, too. Uh, it's clear that you're, uh, you're good at what you do, and you, you'll be running across the stage full speed sometime soon. Well, I, that, that means more to me than you know. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I, I will say, I, I, I told you this during the, our pre-show talk, but when I saw you, I was in 10th grade, and it was for the Jim Gaffigan tour. It was actually my very first stand-up show. I'd never been to one. So, if, technically speaking, you are the first stand-up comedian that I ever saw live. And I will say, oh, it has stayed with me all these years. So to talk to you has truly been my honor. So thank you for being on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad that I was I was one of your I guess I was your first if I was I was opening. Uh, <laughs> you were. Was, it's true. I was first. Yeah. It's very true. And so to uh, any uh yeah, so thank you. So thank you again uh because it does mean a lot. And I told a lot of people that you were on my show, not going to lie. So I'm I'm excited to share this with everybody and anybody so that they can uh hear all the awesome things you had to say. And to Well, thanks, Max. I'll share it too for sure. Uh, Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I can't say I appreciate it enough. And to anybody listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also find us at our Facebook page at Talking Late Night. And you can also find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Ted for being on. Thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.